Welcome to the Kelly Patrick Show. Thank you so much for tuning in. In today's episode, I am joined by Patri Friedman. We get to talk about all sorts of very fascinating topics, including seasteading and charter cities. Really great episode today. I want to thank Patri for joining me. If you're a fan of the Kelly Patrick Show, I ask that you please send some referrals the way of my sponsors. The title sponsor of the show is Louisville Combat Academy, located at 7908 Beulah Church Road, Louisville, Kentucky, 40228. They have a great MMA program, but also, even if you aren't planning on fighting in the cage, they have a great jiu-jitsu program for adults, female-friendly classes, and a great kids program also. Check out Louisville Combat Academy. Heidi Solars Coots. Heidi is a licensed clinical social worker and licensed clinical alcohol and drug counselor, specializing in treating anxiety, depression, trauma, and addiction with a mindful and holistic approach. Heidi is actually my mother, and I can attest she is a saint. Call her at 502-457-1823. Virtual and telephonic appointments are available anywhere in the United States. Veercast Digital Media. Veercast Digital Media at veercast.com. Matt McCarthy runs Veercast, and he is also the producer for The Kelly Patrick Show. They do video production, aerial drone photography, web design, and podcast production. Contact them at info at veercast.com to start your own video show or podcast. Also, my health insurance practice, Benefits Analysis Corporation. Based in Troy, Ohio, I work from my Louisville, Kentucky office. I can help anyone in the United States with their health insurance needs. I'm an independent broker for health insurance solutions for individuals, families, Medicare-eligible individuals, and also groups. I can also write life insurance, and long-term care. If you want to support the podcast, please send me some referrals. 502-386-0978. Welcome to the Kelly Patrick Show. Thank you so much for tuning in. In today's episode, I am joined by Patri Friedman. Patri, how are you today? Great. Eating some bacon. Just got back from the gym. Doing well. I love it. Um, Prior to us starting to record, you did. You said, I'll just eat a quick piece of bacon and we'll be on our way. You kind of made a joke, but you were actually eating a piece of bacon. And I said, interesting. So you're not like a vegetarian or anything like that. And you were actually telling me a pretty, uh, what I find to be a fascinating story about an elimination diet uh, with your son that had helped. Yeah. So my son came down with ulcerative colitis uh, late this spring, probably because of getting COVID. It seems to be something about COVID that triggers these like immune reactions that uh, can lead to autoimmune diseases. And he ended up in the, in the emergency room. We were there for uh, a week and a half. He was able to go home on medication. Um, he was getting better for for a bit, but then he was like slowly getting worse for a month and a half. Um, and I was traveling to, uh, in Asia and I met a, a guy in Bali who had cured his own Crohn's disease, which is very similar. They're both forms of IBD, uh, with the carnivore diet. Now, for me, I used to be really into different diets. I was very early into paleo and keto like 20 years ago. And when I heard about elimination diets, uh, sorry, about carnivore because of Jordan and Michaela Peterson, you know, I think there's some people jump to like, oh, it's all about being like no carb or it's some kind of like caveman thing or whatever. But I was like, wait, that's an elimination diet. So an elimination diet is where if you think you might have food sensitivities, food allergies, foods screwing you up in some way, you try to eat the t- smallest number of things that the fewest people are allergic to that provides all your nutrition. And then you find out if you do that and you and you get better, it means that your food was bothering you. Um, I did this 15, 20 years ago. It didn't really do much for me. I used salmon and rice was, was what I started back on. So it seems like I don't really have many food issues. But for my son, when, when he's got an autoimmune disease of the gut, like if your gut, you know, is injured, that means it's going to be the most reactive and the most sensitive to anything that bothers the body. Um, and so I thought, wow, this this like really makes sense. Like carnivore is an elimination diet. Meat is a complete food. It provides every every nutrient uh, that you need. Um, not saying that it's the ideal, but it's complete. And so I said, all right, what the heck, let's try it. It was hard. It's so much easier for me to do wacky diets on myself. It was like really hard mentally for me to be willing to do it for my son. But 
I, I felt like it was a good shot and it worked basically instantly. Like within one to two weeks, he was better um, and he stayed better. Was that, uh, you, you said you met a, a guy during your travels who kind of uh, influenced you to try this or, or to, to suggest your son tries it. Um, was it suggested by any actual doctor or anything? Or you just oh, kind of do this no. on your own? No, I, I, there are several diets that are used for IBD that I think are in the right direction. They eliminate like some of the things that, that bother that, that injured gut, but they, they really don't go anywhere near far enough. They leave in like lots of things that um, like lots of plants that some that like bother some people. There's this, you know, maybe it's a just so story, but this idea that like animals try to stop you from eating them by running away. And plants, there's some kinds of plants where their reproductive cycle, like they want to be eaten and then you poop the seeds out somewhere and that's how they grow. But all the other plants don't want to be eaten. And one way that they try not to be eaten is to be poisonous. Even if it's not poison, you know, like like hemlock or something, just kind of being difficult to digest and having compounds in them, which make them kind of like unpleasant and hard. And so I think you know, for, for people with, with good immune systems and healthy guts can handle plants, but it's, it's something where when, when your, your body's a bit compromised, um, it, it can't handle doing that tough thing. Over the past few months, I have listened to a few different interviews with you and I've been fascinated, of course, with your father and your grandfather, uh, and grandmother, uh, for years, but I, through listening to these recent podcast episodes, recent for me over the past however many years that you've recorded them. Um, one that is aligned with our conversation right now is during the uh, Penn Gillette podcast episode, I noticed, and you guys weren't arguing, you both handled it very nice, very friendly uh, episode, but you guys kind of came to a little bit of a disagreement. Did not sound like Penn was a fan of Jordan Peterson's. And it sounded to me like you you are, or at least you were for that episode. Um, and then, of course, with the elimination and the carnivore diet, that brings me right back to the Jordan and Michaela Peterson conversation. Um, I assume you are at least intrigued with the Petersons. I don't know. Do you know them? No, I don't have the privilege of, of knowing them. But, uh, yeah, Jordan, Jordan Peterson is um, maybe my like one of my favorite intellectuals like in the world today. Um, I think, I think maybe what it is with Penn, you know, Penn has this, this history of, of debunking and skepticism. And I think some of Jordan maps to the kind of like preacher, you know, preacher cult leader kind of thing to him. Uh, for me, the, the vast majority of the time when I hear Jordan Peterson talking about subjects, it's very nuanced. It's very intellectually honest and nuanced and like textured with lots of disclaimers and alternatives. Uh, and it, it's funny because like partly he, he gets famous for these these sound bites. But for me, those sound bites are not at all reflective of, you know, why I like him or like the vast majority of, of the material. I love li listening to the like his maps of meaning, um, you know, all of that. I feel like I've learned a lot about mythology and archetypes and and what they mean. And I just I just think he's a really brilliant, broad-ranging, knowledgeable, careful thinker. Uh, I will say that there are times when he when he goes uh, away from that. Um, I, I saw seen him speak a couple times in the last few years. And in the more recent one, it was actually it, it kind of like kind of like bothered me where where in, in the first time I saw him speak years ago, maybe he'd occasionally get in some kind of like uh, like hit against leftism and there'd be like some scattered cheers. But this time when it happened, it was more like a lot of people were cheering as if like a lot of people were kind of like really into him for this tribal thing. Mm. And it's an energy that like I, I I don't like. And he kind of went into it for 10 or 15 minutes or something where he, he stopped being that nuanced, careful thinker and was just kind of rehashing arguments that I've heard from him a lot of times before, just kind of like generic left bashing. And, you know, I, I for me, that's not what is what's interesting or special about it. But, you know, even then it wasn't that long. And then he went back to, you know, fascinating explorations of, of Christian mythology and, and topics like that. So, you know, I think I think he can kind of fall into this trap sometimes of getting into this emotional tribal stance. But it's like such a tiny percentage of the time that I hear him. And most of the time 
yeah, he's just he's very careful and nuanced and, and brilliant. My wife is from Cuba. She escaped Cuba in 2014. And for whatever reason, over the past few years, Jordan Peterson has really resonated with her. She's been reading his, his books. And of course, he's very outspoken against Marxism and articulates those arguments, you know, very well, as well as anyone, especially today. Um, but also, as you mentioned, his way of tying everything together. And I'm not saying he's specifically a Christian, you know, he's not like a Christian preacher. That's not specifically what he does, but he does tie in some historical uh, messaging from Christianity. I I assume that's intriguing to you also. What are your thoughts on uh, Jordan Peterson and the way he articulates the history of Christianity? Well, I find it fascinating how he kind of explains some of the mythological meaning of the stories and really digs into like like why why did these particular stories resonate with people so much that they've lasted for thousands of years and yeah what like what can we learn from them about ourselves i think that's marvelous i also i feel like he does it he doesn't fall into either like the 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 atheist or or religious trap um in the sense that he's not like oh there's definitely a god you know you're needed if you don't believe anything like that but he also takes really seriously the benefits of religion the benefits of believing in something bigger than yourself. And I think he, he really gets into um, you know, kind of the the meaning of spirituality and the value of it, the value of the sacred, the value of beauty, without kind of saying what any person should believe. So I, I think there he walks that line, you know, really, really, really well in what I think is the right way. Yeah, I heard one of his clips where he said, He's not going to be one of those guys who comes out and says, um, Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior. If you don't accept him, you're not going to go to heaven. You'll never hear him say that. But I have heard him say he is going to live his life as if, you know, God is watching and he's going to be consistent with that type of an approach. So he's not exactly an evangelical Christian to any degree, really. Uh, But he is acknowledging the... I mean, if you look at it throughout the totalitarian regimes throughout history, a lot of times they shun religion. And so he's kind of connecting the dots and saying, okay, well, if we're, you know, closer with a religious lifestyle, a lot of times that leads to better things. And that's what I opt for. Yeah, I, 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 I'm, I'm Jewish. And in the past few years I've done, um, you know, I'm not, I'm, I'm an atheist, but I believe in the value of these traditions and rituals. And I've done some practice of Shabbat, of having that, that, 24 hours that you take off from from working and from striving, uh, maybe from from digital devices. And there's a book I love on this um, called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. And it's by a Christian pastor who integrates Shabbat in his life. And it's kind of for him part of how you slow down. And he had this this idea in his book that I love that, that seemed pretty rare in Christian thought, which is something like, if you want kind of like the joy and love and happiness of Jesus and you want to be like Jesus, then you actually have to like live like Jesus and read the Bible as like, like, okay, how did this guy spend his time? Like, what was his attitude? And this is like really, really different from like normal mainstream Christianity and how it engages with the Bible, right? It might kind of teach you certain lessons of the heart, but it, but you know, there's also like, how do you relate to time? How busy are you? Like how open do you leave your days? Um, and that if you actually like want a spiritual life, you want to be close to God, you want to be like Jesus, you need to actually take on some of his lifestyle, which is very difficult in the modern world. It's not what we're surrounded with, but like, that's what you're actually, that's what it actually says to Jesus actually says, like, come be like me. This is my yoke. It's an easy yoke, you know, a yoke meaning like a way of bearing the weight of life. Interesting. You being, I, I, you said you were raised Jewish. Was that a big part of your childhood? Oh, I, no, I was raised atheist and I discovered, you know, I'm, 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 you know, my, my, on my dad's side, I'm Jewish and, and both of my, uh, my wives, now ex-wives have been Jewish. And so I kind of, as an adult, I got into the ritual and the traditions, like mainly for my children. But I think that, that, that the practice of Shabbat is something that's actually, it's one of the few like, like religious practices that I think is actually even more powerful today than it was then. And it's, it's something that I kind of recommend everyone look into. It's like the, it's the, it's a holiday every week. Very interesting. I'll have to look into that. Um, Patri, of course, your 
grandfather is Milton Friedman, arguably the most fa- uh, famous or well-known free market economist ever, I think. Um, so I'm, I'm sure that has influenced you. And of course, your father, David, is um, one of the most well-respected like anarcho-capitalist economists himself. Um, how would you describe yourself politically? Is it very consistent with both your, your father and your grandfather? Yeah, it's it, it's pretty consistent, although it's evolved a bit. So I, you know, I'm I'm weird enough that I actually came up with my own political philosophy, sort of my own, although it 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 it's been touched on by others like like Robert Nozick. Um, you know, but I call it competitive governance. It's the idea that um, that making government is a technology. You don't just get to like say what you think right and wrong is, and then have it like magically appear. Uh, this is partly from from my dad's work in the field of law and economics, but you can basically demonstrate that there's no recipe for turning a set of goals into a set of like laws and punishments and institutions to achieve those goals. It it, it it's impossible. Um, and so the, and so like you actually have to tinker. You actually have to try different rules, different punishments, different court systems. Um, so that's part of it. And and because it's a technology that we have to tinker with. Um, wanting wanting to see it done in kind of government startups like groups of people actually like try different sets of laws and live under it and just having this world of experiments people trying out new policies uh, and evaluating things you know like my grandfather consequentially based on how it actually turns out and uh thinking of government as an industry where there's these different firms these countries that provide some kind of government services in return for, for taxes and that we are we citizens are consumers so we're shopping we're out there kind of picking a jurisdiction and that we ought to be able to we ought to be free to to create a jurisdiction and free to like leave and and go to a jurisdiction that will take us um but that we shouldn't think that like if we just get a whole bunch of people who all believe in the same right and wrong, they can like magically create a society that implements that, that, that it's a learning process. And, you know, again, with the consequentialism of my family, thinking very much of my, um, like my beliefs as a libertarian about right and wrong, I have very strong, very libertarian moral intuitions, but rather than thinking that that is the absolute truth that everyone else ought to believe and that I would convince them of and that they're wrong if they don't have, I think of it as a set of preferences that I have for what kind of society I want to live in. Like as a consumer of government, this is what I want, a very libertarian society. And also from the standpoint of engineering societies, that I have this set of beliefs about what kinds of mechanisms work well, believing that freedom works like really, really well as a mechanism whenever possible, we should be using it in our designs and that that's going to work out well. But it's really different from something like thinking like this is right and wrong. And all we have to do is like get people to understand this right and wrong. And then we can just like write the laws and then, you know, and then we're done and we have our society. I think like that that's, it's very like natural. It's intuitive. I understand why people think that way. And I've, I've thought that way in the past, but that it's just, it's just not People are different, naturally. Different people want different things. There's some things that are like clearly right and wrong. And there's other things like, look, if you're a libertarian, if, if you like, you should believe in voluntarism, you should believe in like contracting. And if 10 million people out there want to go make a society that has some set of very non-libertarian rules, that's their right. And people are different enough that that might, that might work out sometimes. It might be the best thing for them. Of course, when comparing like, relatively good government experiments, such as, I guess, the United States, I would say. You know, we're pretty free here, obviously. We live a good life. I do. Um, My wife is from Cuba, so that's the opportunity I get to compare it most to, is, of course, they're an authoritarian government that doesn't give you the freedom of speech and some of these basic uh, human rights that we take for granted here in the United States. But one of them, you touched on it earlier, was the right to just freely leave when you want. If you want to leave Cuba, you need to like apply to the government and say, hey, I want to, I'm trying to, I, here's why I want to leave. Um, we're hoping, I hope that you're going to approve that I can go to this country. I hope the government, please let me go. Um, and then you got to wait and they may just say, hey, we're still working on it. And a few months later, you haven't even heard a response. So I think that at its core, if you're evaluating 
um, societies and how to successfully uh, run a, a good free society, I agree with you. That has to be one of the key components is the ability to come and go as you please. I know it sounds very simple, but you mentioned it earlier and it kind of resonated with me. Yeah, I think of it as me sort of like the universal human right. Um, and the reason is that if people are getting to to choose their society that they live in and and create one if one doesn't exist, you know, only with people that want to create it with them, then you can kind of say that like every other like factor of like law and right and wrong within that society, you don't have to worry about. If you respect people's ability to choose and you respect their right to choose for themselves, then if they got to freely choose, we don't have to be like, oh, but like maybe the society is 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 wrong or bad because it does this or doesn't do that or you know allows this. If they chose it, then you know if you respect them, it's it's probably okay. And and I'm not saying that this works for you know absolutely everything. There's there's corner cases, right? How does the society treat children who aren't you know fu- fully able to make their own decisions? Um, what about jail as a punishment? Because that ends somebody's right to exit, but it, you know, it is a useful, a useful punishment. Like, should that just be like, would that just be like illegal in my world that like you don't have jail? Like maybe I, I need to have a bunch of arguments with a bunch of smart people about it to figure it out, but like, but maybe. Uh, but it just frees you from worrying about all the other rights, basically. My interview style is very ADD, so I apologize. I'll be like jumping from one thing and then back to the other. So Do it. Uh, apologies in advance for that. Um, in the United States, to a degree, we do have that. You get to live in, I'm here in Kentucky. If I wanted to during the COVID um, chaos, I could have moved to Florida. Um, you have the Free State Project in New Hampshire. Of course, I could move there. Maybe more like, like-minded people. Uh, if I really, for some reason, thought <laughs> California is doing a great job, which I guess some people do. I don't know. Gab. <laughs> Newsome. California is a beautiful state. <laughs> I the Bay Area is like is even though m- like a lot of smart people have left, it, I think it used to be like the majority of people and sort of like smart tech people in the world and now it's like way way less than 50%, but still the highest concentration in the world of those people. And the natural beauty here is insane. I mean, I live up in the mountains overlooking the Pacific and it's incredible. The government of the state, <laughs> absolutely terrible. Why are you there? Kids, kids and family. Uh, same reason I'm still in, in the U.S., actually. Um, I'm very much, I've kind of been on the edge of leaving the country for, for 20 years. And at this point, it's it's really just uh, because of kids and, and school and family. Um, but I think once the, you know, once the youngest is off to college, uh, there's no way I'm going to be living in the U.S. still. Maybe sooner if I can make a, make a really appealing charter city before then. Okay. We haven't touched on your specific ventures into, so I was trying to build this up to where your grandfather, your grandmother, and then your father, they have this, you know, these great ideas and among the most respected within their fields. Um, and then you being the grandson, you've came along and you've been like, okay, we, we you know, I agree, freedom, it doesn't sound like what you articulated earlier is very different from what your grandfather with the free to choose, you know, the TV show, my wife and I are yeah. started rewatching it, I think on Amazon prime or something recently. But, um, what you were talking about earlier is pretty similar to what your grandfather has been, you know, had said for yeah. so many years. Um, but you came along and you were like, okay, great. Now, how can we try to implement this in a positive exactly. way and kind of try to create, I don't want to say new governments, because that may be like a, a bad word. I don't know, you, but you're, you've been trying with the seasteading and, and these dip, different uh, projects to implement yeah. a new system. And I assume that's kind of a lifelong journey for you. If it's all right, if yeah. we assume someone listening has no idea what Patrice Friedman's background is with this, is it all right if you kind of introduce that to the listeners? Yeah, absolutely. Um and it does really, it's it, it's really about kind of like in my family, each generation trying something to make more freedom. And then, you know, the next generation seeing how it did and didn't work and, and trying to uh, to evolve it. And so with my grandfather, it was about uh, doing economics, designing good mechanisms, um, things like the negative income tax or uh, or ending the draft and having a, having a, 
you know, just like a paid professional army. Um, and then advocating, you know, advocating for the values of freedom, advocating for these mechanisms and, you know, and, and he was able to get some, you know, some really important policies into practice, you know, he contributed to, to ending the draft, um, and to the, the earned income tax credit, uh, and a, a number of other, number of other policies, but, but ultimately, you know, the U S still, um, kind of the government grew it went away from freedom in a lot of different ways and it kind of wasn't enough. And so my dad comes along and, and we now have, uh, have decades of a field called public choice economics, which just analyzes the incentives that voters and politicians have uh, in systems like democracy. And you can basically show with economics that democracies will tend to pass policies that favor special interests uh, and not the general population. Um, just because special interests, uh, you know, they, if there's a law that's going to like harm everybody a little bit and benefit some special interests, like, uh, let's just say like, like having to use Bluetooth headphones in your car, right? Like I, from what I understand, the studies show that it like doesn't, it's not actually any safer than like holding up a phone to your ear that the downside is your attention is on the call and it's not actually like the physical motion. And so it costs a bunch of people, a bunch of, a little bit of money and it benefits one specific industry. And like most, a random voter is not going to read those studies. They're not going to know about it. Um, and whereas like the industry is going to be able to like lobby and pressure politicians and that this general pattern of, you know, like something that, that just like, costs me five bucks. I'm like never going to go spend an hour researching and learning who to vote for or whatever for something that cost me five bucks, but something that costs each American five bucks. That's like, you know, five bucks times 350 million, 400 million, right? We're talking about a couple billion dollars. And if there's some industry that benefits by, you know, even a few hundred million, they're going to be happy to go spend a bunch of money lobbying, and get this to pass. And so this pattern happens again and again and again in democracies, hurting everybody a bit to benefit special interests. So we actually, we have economics demonstrating this. Um, and so it's like, no, we actually need different mechanisms. We need different political systems, different ways of deciding what the laws are. And that's where anarcho-capitalism comes in. You know, so my, my dad was one of the major theorists of this system of privately produced competitive law. Uh, and he's done some economic work under it. And actually within the analysis of law and economics, there's so a, a really strong theoretical argument that this that anarcho-capitalism would actually produce uh, efficient law, which is law that kind of has the max benefit for the max people under under a certain definite imperfect definition. But still, um, it's it's really it's really really exciting. So it's like a different mechanism that like ought to spit out good laws instead of bad ones. Uh, and so then I come along in the next generation, and there's you know probably when I was twenty years ago. There's maybe hundreds of thousands of people who believe in anarcho-capitalism. It's way more now. And I'm like, well, all right, we have this better system that might not work in practice, but is like, it's worth a try. There's some strong arguments for it. Um, plus, it's very appealing morally. Like, there's no person or group who's privileged over any other. Everybody has the same rights. Everybody's equal. Um, well, okay, what's the problem? The problem is that we have no, no way to do startup countries. We have no way of putting new legal and political systems into practice. And so that's been my work for my whole life for more than 20 years now is how can we change the world so that people can try out new sets of rules, start new societies. And when I got into this stuff in the early 2000s, countries were not at all willing to do kind of governance experiments. And so that's why I started seasteading. Um, it's if we can open up this new frontier in this new place, then we can start societies with new rules and the the law of the sea is actually really almost like almost anarcho-capitalist in a sense where when you're out on the high seas you have to fly the flag of a country that you're registered with in like an annual registration and you're basically like a floating embassy of that country you are franchising their sovereignty onto your boat by being registered and so there's this competitive global market for flag registries where they're all competing to be your jurisdiction. Um, and so it's actually this like beautiful competitive system, which is really appealing. Now it turns out not surprisingly that building on the ocean is really difficult and expensive and uh, it's taken us a long time. 
Um, right now, there's these really neat uh, floating homes called sea pods being produced in Panama. But that's like finally this year after you know a lot of a lot of years of work. I started the Seasetting Institute in in 2008, um, and I think that there's some some things that could be done with with cruise ships and living on cruise ships um, that that people aren't doing that would work. But generally, seasteading it's 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 pretty difficult. But part of what it did was it got the word out to millions of people about this idea of like, hey, why can't we start new societies? Like what a valuable thing to do. And now in the last 10 years, countries are are now kind of getting the benefits of these governance experiments. Special economic zones have really proven themselves. We've seen the success of Dubai Financial Center, Hong Kong, of Shenzhen. Um, and there's a lot more openness to the idea of, of a country creating a special jurisdiction and having it be in Europe, they call them like regulatory sandboxes, meaning just like an experimental place where you can mess around with different, different regulations. And Honduras actually was kind of, it's kind of been the world leader in this in 2010 and 2011, a group of kind of like Western economics degree uh, folk created a, a program to have these zones that can have different laws from the rest of the country where a private developer applies to the government um, with their own commercial law system. So these zones called Zetas, Zones of Economic Development, they follow the Honduran Constitution, all of the Honduran treaties, uh, Honduran criminal law, but the whole commercial law system is, is written um, you know, with approval of the regulator uh, by the, the company that's running the zone. And so this was this really exciting, groundbreaking program because it kind of, you know, it it unbundles like the stack of laws and it says, hey, this broad area of law. And, you know, for people who don't know, commercial law includes everything that's not a crime. So it includes um, like like liability, uh, medical regulations, currency and financial regulations, contracts, building codes and zoning, uh, corporate law, like a, a lot of things. So it, it was a, a, you know, a really like, like bold and brave move on, on their part. Um, and so I worked with Honduras a bit in 2011 and 12, trying to make the first zone, but it was just too early. The program wasn't really running yet, but I've been the, the lead investor in the, in the, in the last round, the series A of Honduras Prospera, which is a company that's actually built and is operating one of these zones in Honduras. And you know, beyond that, I've started a venture capital fund called Pronomos Capital to invest in these kinds of projects in jurisdictions that uh, have a partnership with a country in order to get to control some part of the laws and regulations within this zone. And so I'm working with countries around the world to create these kind of governance experiments. And I'm like super, super optimistic at, at this point, like the machine is kind of cranking and rolling that we're going to get these zones that get to try out different laws. Um, you know, in, in Prospera, they, they kind of looked around the world at, at different parts of commercial law in different countries, different US states, and just said, who's got the best mortgage law? Who's got the best medical regulation? And just kind of copied it all into, into one big body of regulations that's just based on the existing best practices. And then from there, you know, I think these zones will be able to innovate and, you know, come up with new best practices. So that's a, a brief overview of my, my work and my career. Very interesting. So it sounds to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, Petri, but um, that you were trying seasteading. You took a very rational uh, approach to evaluating the costs and the benefits of actually building new cities like out in the middle of the sea. And at the end of the day, right now, it appears it's not cost effective to do so. So you then moved on to the idea of like charter cities. Yeah, that's that's about right. And I, I still... I. I think that there's ways that seasteading is is better, like the the benefits of being able to like move around on the ocean, that fluid environment, but it is also a lot more difficult. And so that's why I'm focused on these charter cities. In the sea pods thing you mentioned, that's in Panama, and those are somewhat cost effective? Yeah, there I think there are a couple hundred thousand for a single family home sized um, pod on a tall platform. It's it's what's called a, a spar. So there's a pillar that connects the the house on top with flotation on the bottom, 
And the idea is that when waves come, I mean, this is how like an oil platform works, that the weight when waves just hit this thin pillar, um, they basically pass right through that pillar is sort of transparent to the waves, not much energy gets transmitted, unlike a boat where that has all that area at the waterline, you know, when a wave hits a boat, it's it's kind of hitting the whole thing full on. And so it's much more stable. It feels the waves a lot less. Uh, it moves a lot less. And now it's not as well suited to moving, right? It has higher drag. It's not as efficient to move it. But when it's like just there uh, out in the ocean, it's much more safe and comfortable in the waves. Okay. And you mentioned Prospera, which is a charter city in Honduras. Is that kind of the poster child for a charter city thus far? Yeah. Absolutely. That that's the zero to one of the movements, and it's it's the only one. So I'm 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 working with a bunch of uh, companies in a bunch of countries around the world right now, and there's there's I mean there's legislation that um, you know has passed you know one of the one house of of a you know of a Congress in a country that's that's similar to Honduras. So there's there's stuff that's happening and that and that's close. Um, but it's all several years behind Prospera, which is actually building. Uh, it has a zone that's operating um, mainly on the Caribbean island of Roatan, which is off Honduras. It's got the second largest coral reef in the world. It's a great tourist destination. Um, and they're, you know, they're building out houses and uh, apartment complexes and office buildings and, and warehouses. And it's uh, it's really exciting. It's it's growing really fast. So that's kind of the one, but there's just been a huge shift in the world in kind of acceptance of these ideas and interest in it. And so there's lots of other projects happening. So specifically with Prospera, when I look at the website, it says, build your future in the most advanced charter city, just a two hour flight from the United States. So are they, there are people living there? It's on this island of Roatan. There's people living there now? That's right. There's about a hundred people living within the zone. Um, and they're currently in the process of building the, the first uh, multifamily apartment towers so that that residential number will increase a lot soon. It's just uh, it's been slow for them to kind of raise money and build out square footage. Uh, you know, that's that's just been the bottleneck. They've got lots of demand, lots of people that want to live and work there. Um, it's just a matter of trying to build fast enough. A two-hour flight from the United States, that doesn't, that's not a, a big deal, really. Uh, someone who comes to mind would be Peter Schiff, of course, the famous, I guess, libertarian uh, guy. Everybody knows Peter Schiff. I'm a big fan of his. But he lives in Puerto Rico now due to the tax laws yeah. in Puerto Rico. Would you compare someone relocating who can work remotely from their computer, someone relocating such as what Peter Schiff has done to Puerto Rico, would it be a good option to look into instead of Puerto Rico maybe doing Prospera? And is that kind of your target audience eventually? Well, the, I mean, the, the, there's a huge difference there in the, in the tax sense where if you're not an American, yeah, you could definitely compare them. Um, you know, Puerto Rico is a lot bigger and, and, and more established, but Prospera has, has kind of a much better um, you know, regulatory system. But for Americans, there's this, you know, special deal where uh, money that you earn after moving to Puerto Rico is taxed at a very low rate, only only a few percent. And you don't get that moving to anywhere else, maybe US Virgin Islands, but anywhere else. But for people who who aren't Americans, definitely. And if you are an American um, and, and you want to get those tax benefits and, and move someplace else, then you need to get a new citizenship and renounce your U.S. citizenship as, you know, lots of people like Roger Ver, the famous early Bitcoin guy, and one of my investors did. Um, you know, there's there's countries like St. Kitts where you can buy passports for your family for like 150000 which, you know, if you're, if you're then not paying, you know, 35% in taxes or something, can actually make that back very, very quickly. Uh, for me personally, you know, I have I have kids and kind of like family ties to the U.S., but I know that uh, like when my kids are old enough that, um, you know, kind of like international visits make sense. I'm I'm definitely going to do it. I'm I'm going to be out of here. As I said, my interview style is very ADD, so I'm going to bounce around. You live in California. Doesn't sound like you're the biggest fan of democracy. And you don't have to answer this if you don't want to. But do you vote? I vote sometimes for fun. I think that it doesn't make rational sense to vote for impact in, in, in most cases, because like, 
the chance of your vote swinging it is is so low. And if it's within the margin of error, it's probably going to get decided by the courts anyway. So I don't think that I don't think that voting is a very effective system um, for a lot of reasons. It's like a small number of bits of information like done very rarely where people don't have much incentive to try to make good decisions. But it's also I also think it's it's kind of fun. Like it's it's kind of like I enjoy filling out like surveys and polls. I feel like, oh, I get to state my opinion and like be counted in the number and like it's going to reflect people like me. So I, I kind of enjoy like taking the poll sometimes, <laughs> but only if it's fun and convenient. Earlier, we used the word libertarian. And of course, any word can be interpreted many different ways. Do you have thoughts on the current libertarian party or do you even keep up with things like that? I don't keep up very much with the Libertarian Party. Um, you know, I, I think at just the the way that our democracy works, uh, the fact that we have this like, um, you know, the majority in each geographic area gets a Congress congressperson, right? Where there's other systems where if you can win 6% of the vote, you actually get 6% of Congress. In America, that's not how it works. If 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 the libertarians have six percent of the vote, they lose everywhere. Um, and so it, I think it just doesn't make like much sense to be trying to get any kind of political power in our system as a minority party. Um, that said, I think there's a lot of, of of benefits for getting the word out, for offering a way. Like even if you know that you're going to lose the election, at least to to be like, oh, there's a candidate for, who's like has values that are similar to mine. I know that they're going to lose. They always lose, but at least in my, when I, in the survey, I can like mark that that's my person. So I, I think it's good that they exist and that there's some good purposes to it, but it's not, I wouldn't think of it as like activism or impact, you know, it's more like, um, like one of the things the tribe needs to do, uh, is to like, cause we're, we believe in politics in political beliefs is like have this political party so that we can like mark our tribal affiliation, you know, but it's not a route to change. So if a political candidate, maybe whoever runs for president in 2024 as the libertarian candidate, that person gets some attention. People, it, it you know, stimulates people to think differently. Sends them- Ron Paul. Okay. Dude, Ron, Ron Paul got the word out about a bunch of awesome libertarian beliefs to like a heck of a lot of people, right? That's a great example of like a huge success um, at using a political position to to get the word out. So I assume you're a supporter. I don't know if I want to say fan, but sounds like you like Ron Paul. Yeah, he's he's he's, he's great. Um, Would you agree with him, like on foreign policy? Are you pretty adamantly anti-war things like that? Yeah, um, I I mostly I mostly would. Okay. War is bad violence is bad uh it's it's also a tool right that it's a tool and and there's probably sometimes when that tool can be deployed in 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 useful ways it's just that we can kind of see from history that the vast majority of the time that it's used it just harms everyone so we should probably use it very rarely and that has not been the practice as of late no no when i what when I talk about how like I got into this stuff 20 years ago because I, I was like, I'm a libertarian and my country doesn't fit my values. And it's also not run very well. So it's kind of the combination of like value alignment and just like kind of operational quality. And I hated like, like both of those. And so I was like, well, why don't I go? Maybe I can find another country that fits my values and is better run. Um, but I didn't find one. I found some different combinations of values that were better in some ways and 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 worse than others um and a few countries that are really well run places like dubai and and singapore um you know it so on that access i think you can do a lot better than the u.s but on the values alignment i, I really couldn't and that's how i got into well like like why is that like why aren't there countries that fit you know values like mine when there's you know maybe like a minority but there's you know millions of tens of millions of Americans who are libertarian and, and way more than that around the world. So like, yeah, like, like, like why, why is that? So that was, that was a big part of my work is that trying to find the values alignment and the, you know, just the tri- the simple examples I give um, as a libertarian is like, 
I don't like that my tax dollars are used to like make wars around the world that hurt people. And I don't like that my tax dollars are used to put lock people in boxes for like what plants they choose to eat. I think that those, those are like two good classic like libertarian things that show that how I'm not aligned with the left and not aligned with the right. Do you think all drugs should be legal? Mm. I look at it from a very consequentialist perspective. I think that there's a lot of drugs that are um, that are often harmful to people um, and that making them illegal is like one tool you can use to try to keep people from like harming themselves with these. But we just kind of know that it doesn't work very well. It's like so easy to synthesize drugs. It's so easy to have a black market that your your choice is probably either be really draconian, like a place like Singapore, like execute anybody who's like distributing drugs. And then maybe you can like keep them, you can destroy the black market. But if you don't do that, like all the halfway shit that we do in like the US, like it doesn't work. And so it's just pure bad. If you're like not willing to to make it so important that you're like executing people and being really harsh, I think you ought to focus on more like a pure harm reduction approach. Um, Cause like just fighting it a little bit just ends up being, you just drive it underground and now you have like issues with purity and now you have like all these like criminals, um, you know, who are using violence because they're doing something that's illegal and it like undermines the integrity of an entire legal system to have these laws that you're not actually able to, to enforce. You know, I, I think it's terrible, but I actually think it's okay. The way that like Singapore does it, like if that's what you want for your society, like great. It actually like, it actually works. Um, you know, it's, it's not, it wouldn't be my choice. I'd rather have the, the other extreme, but it's, but it's one of those cases where all the stuff in the, in the middle is crap. So I, I think that like psychedelics are like much, much more often positive benefits to people, but that like most other drugs, um, you know, benzos, hypnotics, like opiates, um, most of those families of drugs are just, uh, like very easy to abuse um, you know, really harm like a lot of people, even though they have some really important medical uses. Uh, there's just like a lot of people who end up hooked on them. I mean, I personally, I was on like sleeping pills, like Ambien and Xanax for 15 years until the last couple of years I got off them. Um, and I think that, yeah, those things, they're just, they're very addictive and, and very harmful. I've heard it's very difficult to get off of benzodiazepines. I've taken some, you know, recreationally, but I've never, fortunately, never actually, you know, taken them every day for months at a time. Was it difficult to get off of specifically benzodiazepines? It definitely was. And, and you know, I, I, I had a doctor's, a doctor's help. And I think that, like, my, my kind of, like, body, it's, it's not like, 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 you know, like Jordan Peterson had this, like, massive issue when he tried to get off of them, which is, you know, there are these rare reactions where people get really, really messed up. And and I didn't have anything like that. Uh, it was relatively easy. But yeah, I, I worked with a doctor. I switched to a different medication, phenobarbital, actually, which is like, it's like barbiturates. It's like this like much older one, um, but it actually like helps you get off it. So I switched over and then uh, and then tapered that down. And it wasn't that bad. I had some some like kind of like life stress where I ended, I got back on them one time for I don't know, some months or maybe it was a year and then got off a second time and, and, and it's just stuck. Very interesting. The psychology of getting off a, a prescribed narcotic. I took Adderall every day for seven years and then I decided I wanted to get off of it. I ended up weaning myself off. I'd take half the capsule and pour it somewhere. And so I just take half of it and then I'd go down to a quarter and then a smaller, and eventually, it took me like two years, but I eventually got wow. off, and I, maybe a little depression and anxiety associated with it, but you know, I got myself off, so I know that's a random that's direction, great. but always a very interesting topic, like somehow weaning yeah. yourself off of prescribed narcotics. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a really big fan of tapering. I've actually, there's, there's water tapers you can do where you actually get really, really fine control, so you can do... Um, you know, like a percent a day or something tapering down or 2% a day, um, you know, where you like mix a hundred doses into like sterile water. Right. And if you mix a hundred doses, if you take one dose and then replace that with water, you've just diluted by 1%. 
So every day you're going down by 1%. So I, I, I did this one time before, but I've also had like the mixture, like get moldy and go bad. So like, this is not necessarily like easy, but if you're the biohackery type, these like very, very smooth tapers, I think is easiest for the body. And yeah, the slower it is, the easier. And if you're thinking about it, you know, so what if it takes a year, like if you've been on it for five years or 10 years, and this is going to benefit you for the rest of your life, like it's so worth it. I also did a lot of hot yoga when I was tapering myself off. And I don't know, psychologically, maybe I convinced myself that it was helping. I don't know, but it's an interesting thing. I love thing. hot yoga. I did hot, I came here from hot yoga. I did hot yoga. I did hot yoga. I drove home and. I did a Bikram class this morning myself. Awesome. It's good stuff. I know. I feel like now I'm like older and into health and like the things I mean, it's like, I really like yoga. I like meditation. I like smoothies. It's like, it feels like, like kind of like boring and generic, but it's like the reason that these things are generic is that they just work. They're just plain good for us. And like, you don't have to always be a contrarian, like do the things like the mainstream things that are like really good and healthy, do those. And then, you know, reject the, uh, you know, the McDonald's and the, and the like sodas and things like that, that are mainstream and bad for you. I love it. Patri, we're right up against the end of the hour. I really appreciate your time for the episode today. Before we wrap things up, is there anything you'd like to mention? If someone's listening, they're interested in learning more about, you know, whether it's seasteading or the charter cities projects, um, how could they learn more about those things and follow you and all that fun stuff? Yeah, um, I would say go to my website, which is patryfriedman.com, all one word. And it's got social links for like my Twitter and, and Instagram. Um, so I de- it's definitely like the best way. It's got a Substack newsletter um, that that will become starting to come out pretty soon. Um, and, you know, and and you can also there's an icon there for my fun Pronomos VC. It's p-r-o-n-o-m-o-s dot v-c and if you go there it's got uh social channels as well definitely mainly twitter but we use all the other ones and we're gonna be we're in a we're in a a period where we're about to start doing a lot more content a lot of videos we're going to be launching podcasts we're kind of uh you know we've gotten to a point where we're ready to really get a, a much bigger megaphone and and spread these ideas because they're really catching on so now's a great time to follow us and you're going to see a lot of stuff i love it patri thank you very much for your time i appreciate you all right thanks man i want to thank everyone for tuning in to the kelly patrick show of course we will have another episode out soon 